It's Sunday morning. Time for the Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. And thank you so much for joining me on this August 20th as we wind through that month when we all used to think about sitting with a lemonade or a beer or whatever it might be under a tree and enjoying summer vacation. But now kids go back to school. It seems like pretty soon they'll be going back in July. So this morning, I thought I would take a step back in time, at least for the first part of the show, and go way north, like to the Arctic Circle and north. And some 30-odd-plus years ago, I had an adventure that I thought I would share with you and it's a time when before we had cell phones, a time when we actually could get off the grid, if you will, long before we had GPS and modern mapping and Google Earth, certainly, and all those things. And I, with my new bride at the time, still my current bride, may I add, went up into the Arctic Circle, flew from Fairbanks up to Bethel in near the Arctic Circle in Alaska, and then got on a float plane and flew from there to the headwaters of the Kobuk River to begin a week-long adventure from the very beginning of the Kobuk, headed towards the Bering Sea, for what was to be a week of paddling through the northern mountains to be able to look at all the fall colors. And, of course, in, in late August in Alaska, fall is is absolutely in full fall splendor. Going through the Brooks Range, we were supposed to have mountain peaks to view and incredible colors, and we were in search of a fish known as a she-fish, which is, in my vernacular, is the equivalent of the freshwater tarpon. It's a fish of magnificent fighting ability. It can get up to 40 pounds. The world record in Alaska is 53 pounds. We were hoping just to catch a she-fish of any, of any weight, and the only place the she-fish live are in the Arctic or in the subarctic, and so we... We're dropped off with a guide on this uh, little lake, which is the as and as remote as you could possibly be. And think this is back in the over thirty years ago. So when you go off the grid, you really went off the grid. And all we knew was that a little over a week later, we were going to be picked up at a sandbar some hundred miles or more downstream uh, as we went through this remote area of, of Alaska in search of not only Arctic char, which we caught incredible Arctic char, but also the, the famous she-fish. So the story kind of begins with getting dropped off and waking up in the morning and hearing a ta-ta-ta-tat all around our tent, and that ta-ta-tat sound was of ptarmigan. And when I pulled open the tent flap, literally, I don't mean mere feet, I mean mere inches from the tent flap was a young family of ptarmigan. Of course, they haven't turned white yet. They're in their summer plumage. And they looked at me, undoubtedly the first human they had ever seen, and they had no fear of any kind. They, they simply just kept pecking at the little insects on the ground, just, I mean, inches from the tent flap. I could have easily reached out with my arm and, and, and grabbed one of the younger chicks. They, they couldn't fly yet. Um, and so that was the beginning of our experience. I should add that we had a wonderful young man as our guide uh, who spent most of his time on another planet as he was, as he was high the entire trip, um, which made life a little bit interesting. And we were in the midst of 
very bad bear terrain. So here I am, imagine this, with my wife and sleeping in a tent, and I've got five bear slugs uh, in an unplugged shotgun uh, in the tent with us every night and all the time on the river in our in our canoe, we had a, I had the, the shotgun ready. Uh, we had bears on the other side of the river at night when we would camp. We had bears a few hundred yards from us when we were cooking. And in the evening, and obviously you don't leave any fresh, no, no sign of food. So when we would make camp on a gravel bar, we would eat several hundred yards away from where our tent was. And then we would immediately hang all of our food and, and, and we're in the Arctic. So there aren't trees. There's much more brush than there are trees, but we would hang all of our food to the extent we could and never had anything open. And, and everything we were eating was freeze dried. There was no way to bring cooled food with us. You're not on in canoes. We had two canoes for this, for this, what I will call it. It was an epic journey. You're not going to bring cold food. So the first couple of days you eat whatever fresh food you can and then you're simply going to be eating, uh, you're going to be eating fish, and you're going to be eating freeze-dried food. And the water, of course, in the Arctic on the Kobuk River is is frighteningly cold. One misstep, and you are you are no longer with the world, um, because the current is swift, and there's you know swimming in the river, which is why it's full of Arctic char and grayling and and this legendary she fish. And we made our way down the Kobuk in what I could can only describe as the worst weather I have ever known on any of my outdoor experiences anywhere in the world. For seven days, we had driving rain. We had huge winds. In fact, we had gale force winds coming up from the Bering Sea, which means they were coming up the Kobuk River while we're trying to go down the Kobuk River. At one point, the waves in the river were so dangerous that we had to, and we were going backwards, despite the fact we were paddling downstream. So here I am with my young wife, and we are we are in a place that's as remote as you can be, and we are in weather that's short of a blizzard uh, and an Arctic winter, as inhospitable as you could be. It's in the low 40s, high 30s. Driving rain, hypothermia is, is absolutely an issue, but you think back decades and decades ago, we really didn't have the awareness of it we have today, and we are literally getting blown back up the river. So we were we had to get off the river, and crabbing your way to the side bank was, is easier said than done, and we emptied our canoes, and we turned them over, and we got underneath our canoes, and we rode out this storm for the better part of a day, I mean, just screaming gale force winds. And if you can imagine three and four foot white cap waves coming up a river, the Kobuk River would be, it's not a small river. It's certainly much bigger than the Fox uh, River in Illinois. It's, it's um, in places it was several hundred yards wide and it's, and the water is moving and it's full of rapids. And yes, it's also full of fish, which of course was the lure of why we went there. So the storm passed, and after the day sitting literally under a canoe, just trying to stay dry, which was impossible. And if you're on a week-long camping expedition in the Arctic and it rains 24 hours a day, uh, and the days are no longer you no longer have daylight 24 hours. Although in late August you still probably have about 14 or 15 hours of daylight, but you're losing 20 minutes a day. It's really kind of remarkable how much daylight you lose every day as you get into late August in the Arctic, we kept going downstream. We were catching incredible fishing. We were eating berries. And yes, we were ever vigilant for the bears. And then we finally got to the she fish hole. 
and the she fish hole was on day five. And we arrive at the sheaf, the first she fish hole, and we get out our heavyweight, 10 weight fly rods, and we stand on some rocks, and we're casting into the pool, and I have a great big streamer on, and I catch a 20 plus pound she fish on one of my earliest casts. And just as they said, it's like a tarpon. It, it takes off, it leaps, it runs, it's absolutely spectacular. And I'm just thrilled that I finally caught this fish or this very rare fish and it's in one of the only places in the world you can catch it. And I brought it in and we've released it and I'm casting again with my fly rod and I hear this and a float plane comes in and lands right in the middle of the hole that we have spent five days in just the worst weather trying to reach coming downstream down towards the Bering Sea. This float plane lands Three or four guys get out. I can't remember exactly today. They stand on the pontoons. They've got spinning rods, no fly rods for them. They've got spinning rods, and they throw their lines out. And immediately, of course, they catch, start catching the she fish that I am trying to cast to. But now i got a float plane in the middle of the hole. And my dear wife turned to me and said, you mean we could have flown here? And with that, I'll end my story of being on the Kobuk River in the Arctic Circle in Alaska over three decades ago at a time when... Yes, we could have flown there, but it wouldn't have been half the fun. And with no modern technology to guide us, it's the kind of experience in the outdoors that when you live to tell about what you hopefully do, it lasts you a lifetime. I'll be back much more with the Great Outdoors in just a moment. And when I do come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about Minnesota and lead shot. I'm also going to talk about the Wild Salmon Center, according to Vladimir Putin. They are an undesirable organization. I think they're a very desirable organization. This is Charlie Potter and the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host on WGN Radio. Thank you for being with me. And if you're just joining the show, well, you missed a little bit of a tale of decades ago of floating down the Kobuk River in the Arctic Circle in Alaska in search of giant she-fish. But you missed it. If you go to the podcast after the show, you can certainly listen to that and as I retold it here this morning, it's as though I was living it yesterday morning. It's still so fresh in my mind, particularly that sight and then sound of this float plane coming in and landing right on top of us after we had spent five days in the in, in unbearable conditions, weather conditions, floating down the, the Kobach just to get to this world famous. Of course, at that time, few people in the world knew about it. She fish hole. Now I'm sure you go on the Internet, it's going to be right there for you. In any event, I wanted to mention that Minnesota is 
continuing with its efforts to ban lead shot. Certainly as a society and as a world, we're trying to take lead out of everything we can because we know of its harmful, harmful impacts. And I think back into my youth when we used to make lead anchors for our duck decoys, we had a little smelting pot and we would get in the barn and we had little cups, sort of like cupcake cups, and you'd bend some wire, electric fencing wire into a U-shaped horseshoe and you'd put it into the melting lead cupcake holder and you would take the cupcake holder off the off the little smelting pot and it would harden and you'd have a decoy anchor and we made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these decoy anchors in my youth and here I am a long time later and I think I survived all that lead but little did we know but today we know a lot more about it and the state of Minnesota is, is now trying to move to prohibit lead shot from being used for upland hunting it's long been prohibited for waterfowl hunting. For upland hunting uh, in a number of the state areas, this has met, been met with a pretty strong rebuke from federal ammunitions, federal being located in Minnesota and one of the largest uh, shot shell manufacturers in the world. And their comment is that there's really very little science to indicate that we should get rid of lead shot when hunting for upland birds, particularly when you're hunting for upland birds, grouse and woodcock, where the expenditure of shells is few and far between, and that there was no, there's no scientific evidence in, to indicate that anything is being harmed by, these, by the expenditure of, of lead shot in these areas, uh, and that the raptor population is evidence of this because the raptor population is exploding, as it is everywhere around America. And it really brings you to a discussion of where do we sort of draw the line? Do we draw the line? We don't want lead in our universe if we can help it, the expenditure of lead shot is is just it's so rare and it's so small unless you're at a shooting range that um, it's inconsequential and the alternatives to lead for small game woodcock and grouse in particular and quail really aren't there. Um, yes, you can shoot steel shot. Uh, most guns, many guns used for hunting of woodcock, grouse, and quail can't take steel shot. Um, and it's very hard to get alternative shot that would be used. So federal ammunition's point of view is a little bit self-serving. I understand it. We are a large maker of lead shot ammunition for the wing shooting sports, and there are very few alternatives for waterfowl. Alternatives have been developed, but for upland birds, really not so much so. And the amount of lead shot being expended by upland bird hunters is just, is just insignificant, is federal's case. The state of Minnesota is taking the point of view, hey, lead shot, lead is bad, and we want to get it out of our environment. Um, it's one of those situations where maybe over time uh, there are other solutions, but for right now it is pretty fair to say that, that hunters don't have much of an alternative. If you're going into the grouse woods or going after woodcock, uh, you don't have much of an alternative other than small size lead shot to shoot through your shotguns. So maybe we get there over time. The state of Minnesota is trying to get us there now and is definitely getting pushback, and I think deservedly so, as to the simply banning lead shot in certain areas without, and there is no science to justify it. It's just a feeling that we know lead is bad, so let's not use it. Um, and I, w I would offer this morning, at least, that federal has a good point to make and that lots of sportsmen and women who own shotguns don't have an alternative or much of an alternative to uh, to lead shot and the kind of loads that you shoot for grouse and woodcock, which is a relatively specialty area, and they're not shooting many shells anyway. So moving on from Minnesota, all the way back to the Arctic, well, part of the Arctic, to Russia, 
uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, has decided that the Wild Salmon Center, that wonderful organization headed by Guido Rar out in Portland, Oregon, which is doing more to save Pacific salmon and steelhead and the wild rivers of the Pacific Northwest than, than anyone. And that includes all, I think, really the, all the efforts of everyone combined. And I'll have more, more on what Guido's doing perhaps in the coming week because it's really fantastic. But Vladimir Putin has decided that he is a quote-unquote undesirable organization and has evicted the Wild Salmon Center from working in eastern Russia, where they've been working for a long time and where they, in fact, have been the only organization fostering conservation of some of the great wild salmon runs left in the world, many of which are in the far east of Russia, where basically nobody lives. And Guido Rar has been there many times and has developed relationships with the individuals there, and they are working to conserve these rivers that have been untouched basically by the by man. They're not developed. They're not developed for natural resources. They're not developed for fisheries. But certainly the feeling is that it's coming as natural resource development continues throughout the world, and eastern Russia has a lot of it. But anyway, for just simply because it's an American organization, they are now undesirable. And uh, so Vladimir Putin has thrown the Wild Salmon Center out of Russia. I don't know what that means for its conservation work. I, I would imagine it means that it's come to a halt. I would imagine that it opens these rivers up to poaching again. It opens them up to mineral, natural resource exploitation, and it undermines what literally is decades of, of work by Guido Rar and those he's worked with in Russia, funded almost entirely by uh, Americans. However, there are a number of oligarchs that have evolved in Russia that have taken an interest in, in preserving the salmon of the Far East, and they have been a significant funding source for the Wild Salmon Center and their conservation work. And maybe they are at odds now with Putin, and that's why he's tossing them out. But either way you look at it, it's a loss for conservation. The Wild Salmon Center is no longer going to be able to work in Russia, at least not at this time. And I'm afraid their conservation work over the years, which has been meaningful, is going to be unwound. Next week when I come back, I'd hopefully be able to talk a little bit, if we have the information, about the index for the waterfowl breeding populations, which we still don't have as of my doing the show this morning. Uh, it's, it's late being, it's almost a month, well, no, it's three weeks late being released now by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, it's very important that we have this information, and we don't have it yet. A lot of people are waiting for it because it'll tell us what kind of a breeding season we've had on the prairies and what to expect of the fall migration. Also, I'm going to talk about the Pebble Mine, which, too, is in Alaska. And then in Illinois, there's some things happening worth talking about. Most notably, we'll only be a week away from the opening of dove season. Thanks so much for listening this morning. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.